Good morning. And I'm excited to be here. I'm humbled and I'm honored that I get to share God's word with, um, with you this morning. Um, when I first uh, talked to Dave about this, I was like, what am I going to share with our body for the last Sunday of the year? I said, well, what better topic to go into 2020 than to talk about evangelism? Because that, that is our mission as Christians, is evangelism. So that's what we're going to talk about, this idea of, of, of passion, a passion for the lost. So first, I just want to talk about a story of a probably quite famous missionary named Mary Slessor. And Mary Slessor, she was around the late 1800s, and she said that she was compelled to go to this tribe, to a tribe in Africa to share the gospel with them. She was held back. They were trying to hold her back and say, do not go over there. Don't go over there. That is a suicide mission for a white woman. But she still felt compelled. She said that the God has shown love towards me, so I need to show love towards others, and I'm going to share the gospel with them. Well, Mary, she got over there, and she was on the coast when she first was there, and she saw some gross brutality. She saw women getting killed and slaughtered and treated and treated unfairly. She saw babies getting killed. She saw a lot of different things that were that we know to be grotesque. But she still said, "I want to go even further." Into this, into, this, into this little tribe, and she went to talk to the Akuyung tribe, and there she even gained prominence. She became a leader there. She built a church, a school, and she even helped them with their uh, tribal warfare and things like that, and even helped with their economy. And then she said, well, and I, I had to ask myself, I said, well, what compelled this woman to go into this dangerous town and this tribe of people to share the good news. Even her people back in Britain, they said, come back. We don't we come back from over here. What is wrong with you? You're still there, and you're there with this. They were infected with ants and all type of things, and she was there, and she wouldn't leave. And she said, I'm, I'm going to stay here. She even assimilated with the culture. They considered her African. And with rats and ants, she still stayed. And I asked myself, what compelled this young woman? Ten years later, someone actually came to Christ. Ten years. One person came to know the Lord. Fifteen years, they, she gave her first communion. Well, seven people able, were able to partake in the sacrament. What type of patience and diligence this woman had to share the gospel with this people? So I, I asked myself again, what compelled her? And it had to be her passion for the lost. It had to be her love for Christ and her love for what God had done for her, that he went through great lengths to save her. And now she's going through great lengths to help save those in this little tribe who had no idea of Jesus. And I know that when we, the greatest worship would be in heaven. The greatest fellowship would be in heaven. The greatest communion with God would be in heaven. But what do we have here on earth? Evangelism. That's what we're here for. That's our mission, is to evangelize. So what does this passion for the lost mean? You say, come on, Ellie, I know I'm to evangelize. You don't have to convince me of that. I know that's my mission. So what does ha- having a passion for the lost really mean? Is it a longing that's in my heart, this emotional thing? Is it me sending money to a missionary organization? Is it me just talking to some random person I meet in the mall or on the street? What does this passion for the lost mean? really mean? 
And we're going to find out today, we're going to look at some Old, uh, Old Testament scripture from Jonah, and we're going to look at Mark and Luke. And I'm going to navigate the ship and tell you where we are in the message. Uh, so as we, I can tell you where we're going. And I believe that we'll see God's passion for the lost, his love for his people. And when we see that, I believe it will compel us to act. And for those who have not committed to Christ, I ask that you listen and that you hear and, the, and you see the beauty of God and how he is pursuing you, how he's gone through great lengths to love you. And I, I believe that that will convict you, that will prick your heart. And for those who, of us who are, have already committed to Christ, I believe this is a call to action. I believe this will give us a heart check for us to see, are we aligned with God's love for the lost? So we're going to unpack this. But first, in John 20, 21, Jesus says, As the Father sent me, I am sending you. So we know that our mission is to go out and to to, uh, share the gospel and to make disciples. So I ask myself, what did God send Jesus to do? And Jesus, in Luke 19, 10, he said, I came to seek and save the lost. I came to seek and save the lost. So if Christ came to do that, then that means we ought to do the same. And I said, well, well, why? Why did God send his only son? And it had to be John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And in the Greek, it's that, that so is emphatic. He so loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's it. That, was, that was his passion for the lost. So I believe that once we see all of this, that that will compel us to act. Uh, and we are sent ones, and our hearts should align with God. So let me pray for us. Dear Lord God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. God, thank you for seeking us, saving us, going through great lengths um, to save our soul. Father, prick our hearts, transform us, that we can imitate you and your heart. Father, allow our minds to be clear and our hearts to be open. Father, we love you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for your Son that you have sent to save us of our, and forgive us of our sins. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn with me to the book of Jonah, to the book of Jonah. If you have a black Bible, uh, it should be black Bibles in front of you. It's on page 775, the book of Jonah, very small book. We're going to look at Jonah 4. Now, this is a little famous book when we tell us to our kids about Jonah in the belly of a whale and getting spewed out. So this is kind of a famous one. But we're going to look at the periphery of this story to see a greater context of God's concern for the loss. But first, let me describe the setting just a little bit about Nineveh. So God told Jonah, go to Nineveh because their evil has come, come to me. But, no, but, jo- but Jonah actually went the opposite direction. He turned around and said, I'm going further away from God. I'm going out of his presence. Like, Why did he do that? And I said, Jonah, what are you doing? How could you not do the commission that God has given you? And so Nineveh was a very immoral, immoral uh, people. They were very grotesque. They were known for what they, their brutalities of war captives. They were known for their, their idolatry. They worshiped false gods. And one quote that I, I have um, here, it says that 
the hands of the warriors that they actually cut off. And one, it says, regarding one captured leader, he wrote, I flayed him, his skin I spread upon the wall of the city. And he also wrote that they mutilated the bodies and stacked them upon one another. I mean, this is some pretty grotesque stuff. And so Jonah had to go into this type of, of city and preach to these people. Now, I don't know about you, I, I probably would have ran away too. I thought, well, man, Jonah had to be fearful. But then when I look at chapter 4, and this is where we're going to land here. It says in verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So wait, now Jonah is displeased because God shows concern for the loss? So God shows concern for the loss? So that's our first meaning, that a passion for the loss means concern. And God is definitely concerned for the loss. But here we see Jonah is displeased, and he was angry. And in chapter 3, the, king, uh, the Assyrian king, he repented. He said, I repented this evil. And Jonah knew that God would do this. But look at the character of God, that he des- how he describes him. Back in, in, it says that God was a gracious God. That is one who, he longs and favors others. He's merciful or compassionate. That means he's tender with his affection. Slow to anger. He doesn't, he doesn't delight in punishing the wicked. He, des, he desires for all to be saved. He desires all to repent. This is the God that we serve. He says that he's abounding in steadfast love. The great Hebrew word hesed, where we see his loyal, faithful, covenantal love. That is the love. That is the God that we serve. And relenting from disaster. So Jonah knew that God was a God like this, and he was so upset. He was more concerned about himself than people. But God's concern is for people. And look what he says in verse 3. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do, uh, do you do well to be angry? Jonah, rather die. I mean, listen to this. Jonah, rather die than to share this news with Nineveh. These immoral people, Jonah is not concerned about Nineveh. He's concerned about himself. He even asked God for him to die. Do you do well to be angry? God's reasoning with him. Do you have, or is your anger justified? He imagined God reasoning with Jonah. And look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade so he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now look at the scene. Jonah, he goes, he doesn't even answer God when God tries to reason with him. He actually goes and he builds a little booth and he sits there and he's waiting on the calamities of, of, of Nineveh. He has no concern for Nineveh, only himself. And God's in his grace, he gives him a plant. 
and it says that Jonah was exceedingly glad, but we also see above it says that when people, he was exceedingly displeased. So he's displeased with people, but then he's pleased with a plant. Oh, Jonah. Oh, Jonah. So it says in verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So now God is rebuking Jonah, not with a whale and a big storm this time, but he gives him a little small worm and a scorching east wind and takes it from Jonah. And Jonah again says, it is better for me to die. What kind of prophet is better for him to die? He refused to show concern for the loss. And God is still in his grace and his mercy reasoning with Jonah. He says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So now he thinks his anger is justified. He, he wants justice. He wants fairness. But one minister said that we don't want fairness because if we wanted fairness, we would get death. What we really want is mercy. That's what we really want. But Jonah wanted, he wanted fairness, but he wouldn't even see his own selfishness, his own pride, his own sin. He'd rather die. And the Lord said, you pitied a plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Again, Jonah has pity for the plant. But God has pity for Nineveh. He's concerned for the lost, but Jonah has no concern. One writer, uh, Donald Baker, he said in his book, he gives a beautiful paraphrase of the last part of this chapter. He says, let's analyze this anger of yours, Jonah. It represents your concern for your beloved plant. But what did it really mean to you? Your attachment to it couldn't be very deep, for it was here one day and gone the next. Your concern was dictated by self-interest, not by genuine love. You never had the devotion of a gardener. If you feel as bad as you do, what would you expect a gardener to feel like who tended a plant and watched it grow only to see it wither and die? This is how I feel about Nineveh, only much more so. All those people, all those animals, I made them. I have cherished them all these years. Nineveh has cost me no end of effort, and it means the world to me. Your pain is nothing compared to mine when I contemplate their destruction. God is greatly concerned for the lost. No matter how vile, no matter how wretched, no matter how wicked, God is concerned for the lost. So the question will come, do we have that same level of concern? And if we think about our own life, we too We're wicked, but God showed concern for us and saved us. So do we have that same concern? It was a case in Dallas a couple months ago. You guys probably already know it, about Amber Geiger, a white police officer who entered the home of a a young man, Botham John, and she shot and killed him. She said that she thought it was her her own apartment, 
And uh, you know, if you know the story, uh, if you fast forward, now she has been convicted of murder and she's been sentenced to for 10 years. And there's a lot of is people on both sides. So, but I want us to focus on this beautiful picture that's happening. Brant John, his brother on the left, on the upper left, in his victim impact statement, he said, he told Amber, he said, I don't even wish for you to go to prison. He said, what I really want for you is what, I, what my brother wanted, and that was, that's for you to receive Christ. He took that moment to share his faith and to display the love of God. And he, he even asked the judge, he said, judge, can I come down and give her a hug? And he hugged Amber for approximately a minute. He didn't even want her to go to prison. He said all he wanted was for her to receive Christ. That's what his brother would have wanted. And now this caused the uproar on both sides, but if we peel back our emotions and we only see what's really going on, this is an example of having concern for the lost no matter what they have done. Great concern, something so personal, and all he cares about is her soul, despite what she has done to his own brother. And then you see the, uh, on the right, on the upper right, her name is Judge Kemp. Amber Geiger asked Judge Kemp, can I get a hug? And Judge Kemp came down off the bench with her Bible, and she placed the Bible in front of Amber. And in an interview she gave to the Associated Press, she recounts to what she said, and she said, you can have my Bible. And she handed it to her. She said, I've got three or four more at home. This is the one I use every day. Man, I don't even know if I would have gave her my everyday Bible. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she said, you haven't done so much that you can't be forgiven. That's what she told her. And she said, you did something bad in one moment at time. What you do now matters. What you do now matters. And she flipped the page to John 3.16. And she told the reporter that she told Amber, this is where you start. And she picked that passage because she said she could recognize that even given the fact that she murdered someone, God still loves you. An African-American judge, you know the history of our country, you know the, the context, this will be profound. African-American judge comes off the bench, shows great concern for the loss. No matter what's going on, all she's concerned about is this woman's soul. She received great backlash for this, but she did not care. She had great concern for the loss. So do we have that same concern? No matter what somebody has done to us or no matter what we believe is so vile or wicked, will we then share the gospel with them and have that same level of concern? Or do we shy away and cringe at the notion that they too can be saved? God has great concern for the lost. Next, a, a, a passion for the lost means care. A, cash, a passion for the lost means care. Turn with me to Mark 1, Mark 1, 40 through 45. Mark 1, 40 through 45. In your black Bible, it would be on page 837, on page 837. Now, this is a short story about Jesus cleansing a leper. And B.B. Warfield, in his book, Emotional Life of Our Lord, he said that, that Jesus, one of Jesus' most mentioned attributes is his compassion. 
his, his pity, his compassion. So we're going to see that here, how Jesus cared for someone because passion means care. And I'm not talking about care, that this bubbly feeling on the inside. This is compassion with action. This is caring for someone, providing for them, taking care of them. So starting in verse 40, it says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Move with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Now, a leper was someone that was ceremonially unclean. No one wanted to be around a leper. In fact, rabbinic code said you had to be six feet away from a leper. And if the wind blew in your direction, 150 feet. One rabbi, he boasted and he said, I throw rocks at lepers to stay away from me. And others said that I just go run and hide. They were emotionally, spiritually, physically destitute. No one wanted to be around a leper. This was considered one of the fathers of defilement. This and along with touching a dead body. Man, a leper was something that was horrific in this time, even today. But look what happens. He came to Jesus. This never would have happened. A leper would have stayed away. But he came to Jesus in verse 40. And he kneeled and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. But Jesus moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him. No one would touch a leper. No one would touch a leper. But we see Jesus' Jesus's care for this leper, this person that's destitute. And he touched him. And immediately he was, he was made clean. When I think about my own life, I know I was a leper in my sin, and Jesus touched me. He touched me. A lot of times in, in, in the Bible, leprosy kind of gives that illustration of sin because when Jesus touches you, he wipes everything away. And that has happened in my own life, and it's happened in every life of a believer where you, that Jesus touches you by tender care, and you are made clean, made clean. So I challenge myself to think, Are there any lepers in my life? Are there any lepers in my life? Are there people in my life that I consider, I don't want to be six feet around them. I don't want to be 150 feet. Are there people that that I cringe that, God, you want me to talk to them? Like, when I think about it, I'm like, the the rapist, the pedophile, the gangbanger, the pimp, the drug, the drug dealer, some people say the government, the court, the, the crooked police. Some people even say the president. Who Would I cringe at the notion of, of caring for them? But Jesus touched them. So it calls us to touch people as well, not to be afraid of the lepers that may be in our own mind. We have to challenge ourselves this. if we do have those, that we need to rid our heart of those and emulate Jesus he touched a despicable leper. And look at, the, look at the response in verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him for every quarter, from every quarter. Man, this man was an evangelist. He was going around telling everybody, I'm made clean. I mean, this is powerful stuff. 
that Jesus healed him, and now he's on the scene telling everybody so much so that Jesus can't go anywhere. And, man, I, that's, I want to do that. That's my heart, and I hope it's the heart of all of us, that we will go around spreading the news that Jesus has touched me, he has cared for me, and now I want you can be cared for too. In Rome, there was this, there were two plagues that hit Rome in the early 2nd and 3rd century, the bubonic plagues, and they gave these great contrasts of what happened. They said there were Christians who responded, and then there were pagans who responded. Now, the Christians, they responded in courage. They went out and they said that they, the people who died, they would clean their bodies and they would wrap them in good linen so they could be buried. They would hold, they would hold them in dignity and honor. And it was, so, it was so, so much so that they would actually go there and they would die themselves and to, in, in service to these people. And that sometimes they would even die while the other person would live. And it was a great illustration of what Christ has done for us, right? And people saw this and, and, and they were amazed. And then they said, they talked about the pagans and how they responded. Now the pagans responded, when they saw a dead body, they threw the body in the street. They just let, they treated it like dirt. They didn't care at all. They did not care. They wouldn't, they, they said they would run away from anyone who, who had a plague. You see that, that, that picture on the left? You see that man, he doesn't want no parts of, of what's going on. He doesn't want any parts. And they, they said that the people, the pagans died more frequently than the Christians. Because the Christians, in their courage, they would heal more people, and they would actually get become immune to some of the disease. But they would do nice things to them, like give them hot broth. They would put a, a, a nice uh, towel over their forehead, rub their back, give them fresh bedding, fresh linen, and just be, be, in, their, be in their presence, give them company. And even though there wasn't a cure for this, God miraculously cured them through the care of Christians. They cared for the loss radically. Now, these people, I mean, you, we know how they were persecuted during this time, and they still, Christians still found the need to care for them because they, they said that they knew God's love for them. And again, the great list that God has, what he has done to save us, and they did that for other people. They cared for them. So do we have that same radical care for the loss? The leper the bubonic plague, will we go in and give ourselves to that, that level of care to provide for those in need? Again, a miracle happened where they were healed. So I believe that when we care for those in need, it just shows the love of Christ. And people then ask the question, and that opens the door. So caring for people, we see Jesus do this with this leper. He did not have to heal him, but he cared for him. He had great compassion, great compassion. Next, a passion for the loss means celebration, means celebration. Turn with me to Luke, uh, Luke 15, Luke 15. In your black Bible, it's on page 874, 874. A passion for the loss means celebration. So first we see a passion for the loss means concern. You concern about those people who are lost. Then you care for them. You provide them tenderness and, and, and care. 
and now we celebrate with them. Now, this is a, a famous parable about the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. Now, sometimes this scripture has been algorized and sometimes misinterpreted, so I'm going to walk through verses 1 or 2 to kind of give us the foundation so we can look at it properly. In chapter 15, starting in verse 1, he says, Now the tax collectors and sinners will all draw near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So now we have Jesus, we have the tax collectors and, the fair, and, tax collectors and sinners, and we have the Pharisees and the scribes. So we have these, these are the characters. And the, and the Pharisees and the scribes are upset. Again, we see the same thing. They're upset that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. They despise the tax collectors because they felt the tax collectors were traitors. They were working for Rome against their own people. And the sinners were anyone who didn't revere Yahweh, anyone who, who didn't adhere to his laws and his, his law. But now... Jesus, he's eating with them, and it says something unique, that they were drawing near to him. So I had to pause there when I read this, and I said, well, do, are sinners drawn to me? Are sinners drawn to me, or am I obnoxious and judgmental? Because they were drawn to Jesus, and he never compromised. So do I stay away, and they're not drawn because I feel like I'm going to be unclean in their presence? When I once was unclean. So Jesus, they were drawn to him. So I had to challenge myself to, to say, am I obnoxious and judgmental? Or do I express the love, care, and concern of Jesus that the loss is drawn to me like a light? So I would ask you, are sinners drawn to you? Your love, your care, your concern. Or do they feel like you're judgmental and obnoxious? That's this was an aside. So now we go back to verse 3. So he told them this parable. So, he, so Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He's giving them a simple illustration of a shepherd because they will understand this. And he's saying, you guys care more about sheep than you do people. I care about people. There will be joy in heaven. Joy. And look how they rejoice over the sheep but they don't rejoice about the sinner and the tax collector. But God says he rejoices with them. He celebrates. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner, over one tax collector who repents than over the 99 Pharisees who believe they need no repentance. The Pharisees did not celebrate with the loss. They didn't care. They didn't have any concern. They grumbled. How is Jesus eating with them? Oftentimes, that can be, that can infiltrate our Christian culture. The parable of the lost coin in verse, starting in verse 8. Oh, what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin 
that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, all these parables, all these parables are speaking the same language. The Pharisees are more concerned about money than they are about people. And so interesting in verse 10, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God. And another translation would, would say in the sight of the angels. So the angels are literally seeing God celebrate over a sinner who comes to him. So when I think about my own life, that the angels are literally, they were literally looking at God be joyful and celebrate over my soul. Man. That is humbling that God of the universe is celebrating over my soul. And he celebrated for each one of you who have committed your life. And those of us, those of you who haven't, he's, he, a party is going to happen. But they were more concerned about money. Now the parable of the prodigal son. Now there's two characters here. You have one brother who represents the Pharisees and the scribes, and then you have another brother who represents the tax collectors and the sinners. So there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Now, you know, as, as Jewish culture, this is, this is the lowest of the low. And he was longing to be fed with the pods and the pigs and, uh, that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Wow, so this, this is so unprecedented because he, he ba- asking for his father's inheritance is like asking him to die. This would never would happen. But his father gave it to him, and he squandered it all in sinful living. Squandered it all. But then, starting at verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, now he's preparing to make amends, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. They got that word again, compassion. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Is this not what happened to us? Look at the progression. Look at the progression in verse 20. But when he still saw, still, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. So when we think about when we didn't know Christ, God was looking for us, looking for us, waiting. He said he felt compassion. And then he ran to him 
Can you imagine the God of the universe? That's what happened when we gave our life. He ran and he embraced us and he kissed us. He indwelt us with his spirit. He gave us all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places. He gave us everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have it all. He put on, he put us, he gave us the best robe, the ring. We are, now we have an inheritance. We are joint heirs with Christ. We have it all. That's what he did for us. But then you look at this brother, starting in verse 25. Now his older brother, son, his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. Man, this was a party. They were celebrating. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. He did not, he did not like this. He didn't like this. Look at this, this brother's attitude. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Like, what? <laughs> Verse 30, but when this son of yours came, he wouldn't even call him his brother. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. So now he's looking at all these visible sins, all these visible sins. Look what he did, but he's not willing to look at himself his own pride, his own ego, his own selfishness. He won't even look internally, but that, those things that are visible, look at him, Dad, look at him. Sometimes that creeps into our Christian culture where we see those sins that are visible, but we don't stump out those, the ones that are invisible. And he says in verse 31, And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It was fitting to celebrate. God is celebrating over our souls when we come to him. But this son, he couldn't get it. So do we celebrate with the lost? Do we celebrate with them? This is an image of Harris County Jail in Houston. A famous rapper, Kanye West was there to give a message and to perform there. And they had multiple images of people worshiping. Now, when Kanye West came out and said, I'm giving my life to Christ, I'm receiving Christ, there were Christians on both sides said, I don't know if this is authentic. How can this rapper who said that at one time he said, I am God, now he makes an album that says Jesus is Lord. How can he do that? Doesn't he need a double shot of grace? Like, is this real? But Kanye, in one of his songs, to kind of talk about this, he said, he said, what have you been hearing from the Christians? This is one of his lyrics from Hands On. He said, what have you been hearing from the Christians? They'll be the first one to judge me. Make it feel like nobody loved me. He said, I can feel it when I write, point of living in the right. If they only see the wrongs, they never listen to the songs. Just to listen is a fight, but you book me for the fight. It's so hard to get along if they only see the slight. From the love of religion, what have you been hearing from the Christians? They'll be the first one to judge me. 
make it seem like nobody loved me. New believer, no one celebrates with him. But God is celebrating. There's joy in heaven. So will we celebrate with the loss? So a passion for the loss means concern, care, and celebration. I don't have to tell you to evangelize. I think we all know that's our mission. It was a Barna study that said 47% of practicing millennial Christians believe it's wrong to evangelize. 56% of practicing Christians report having two or fewer conversations about faith with non-Christians in the past year. 38% of practicing Christians report they have no non-Christian friends or family members. We must have a passion for the loss. And we must show concern, care, and celebration. So I ask you, do you have concern? Do you show care? Do you celebrate? So I challenge us in 2020 to study the scriptures that we talked about today and discuss them as a family. Saturate your mind with the beauty and the character of God and how, who he is and how he has pursued us. From Genesis to Revelation, you see this great redemptive story of God wooing us, literally pursuing us by his love and his passion. So, and I ask that you finally act. Find a way in 2020 to demonstrate your passion, to, dem- to show concern for the lost, to show compassion and demonstrate care. Celebrate with a new convert. And lastly, with, our, with Mary Slessor, it said that before she died, remember I told you she had one person after 10 years. Well, when she died, she had a church of 10,000 people. She had seven people initially after 15 years partaking in communion, but when she died, she had 3,400 on the roll. She, changed, she made changes in the judicial system, and, and she also uh, caused peace amongst their tribes. And when she went, called back to Great Britain for more women to help her, she said this. She said, if they can play Beethoven and paint and draw and speak French and German, so much the better. But we can want all these latter accomplishments if they have only a loving heart, willing hands, and common sense. There are thousands of them in our churches, and our home churches have no monopoly or privilege in choosing to keep them. Spare us a few. Induce them to come forward. So will we come forward? Will we have a passion for the loss? Let me pray for us. Dear God, we love you and we praise you for your goodness. God, we thank you for pursuing us, for showing us your love, God, showing great care for us, great concern, and God, in celebrating when you have reconciled us to, to yourself. Father, we need you in this time and going into 2020. Prick our hearts. Allow us to have a passion for the loss. Allow these words to resonate in our heart, and it will give us um, vitality, and we will be going to 2020 ready to go to do your mission. We won't turn away like Jonah. Father, we love you and we honor you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, and we thank you for your son that you have given us um, to pay for our sins. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.